Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we've got a very full episode ahead of us. We've got a new sporting director. We've got MLS roster moves and results, U.S. Open Cup, CONCACAF Nations League, much, much more. Here with me to talk about those and other things are two friends. Up first, a man who is no longer in contention for the sporting director role at U.S. Soccer. It's David Goss. David, what do you think held you back from getting that gig? I'm assuming you made it into the final round of interviews, but what do you think really held you back from getting the gig on a permanent basis? I said mate as many times as I possibly could in the interview to establish my credentials. Uh huh. It feels like it didn't land. For me, it's not a pen, but I guess that's not true. <laughs> so, so you tried to get the authentic Englishness in there, just still that also had the American accent behind it? Uh, it seemed like a fusion of the best of both worlds, you know? I should introduce our, our, our other co-host, but instead I'm going to stick with this topic for a little bit longer. Are there words that like, Joe's because miserable. everybody, everybody, I feel like in my, in, in my like email world says cheers or types cheers and I start to do the same. And then I realize that I'm that person who like, am I allowed to say cheers? Am I allowed to say mate? I had a friend once who would always call money quid. That felt very odd to me. Mm, yeah, Gosh, what's, what's, what's your rule here? Do you say cheers? No, not at all. And I think people who say cheers are trying so hard hard to sound like casual and relaxed and it doesn't at all it's kind of like the meme of uh whatever the comedian is being like what's up my fellow kids <laughs> that would be steve buscemi yeah I and cheers to I that i always reference. confuse his name at the last second with john leguizamo so i just stopped saying it steve buscemi and john leguizamo the same person to david goss while we ruminate on that we'll say hello to our other co-host a man who remains in consideration for the usmnt head coaching gig since it seems everyone is it's joe lowry hi joe First of all, I, I love everything that you guys just said. I agree with all of it. I was like largely gesticulating on my screen at, at you know positive feedback, negative feedback in different moments. I love it. Don't say cheers if you're an American. Cheers, I'm sorry. It just don't do it. And definitely don't do the quid thing. That's I not to gatekeep, but I, let's stay on the other side of that gate. Um, the other thing is Taylor and, and David, thank you both for taking taking time to do this. Um, Goss, congrats on, on the role. Taylor, congrats on the role. I have nine distinct questions for each of you that I will now be going through in uh, in grave detail. This mm-hmm. should be done in about an hour. Um, Taylor, do you want to go first? Goss, do you want who want who want who wants to go first? <laughs> Are you referring to the press conference that you and I were both just in? I am. It, it felt like a, a decent segue, and it just is really how I feel. So Taylor and I were on the the press conference with JT Batson, with Cindy Parlacone, and with the US uh, with US Soccer's new sporting director Matt Crocker. And there were a lot of double or triple questions that were being oh asked, goodness. which I get. Like, you want to squeeze in as much as you can. I understand. Uh, not not trying to poke fun at anybody in particular. But, you know, if you're going to ask a few questions, you know, might, might, as well, might as well shoot as many arrows as you can so that when you don't get anything back, you can at least say you tried. I, I, I agree. I will add, though, that I think in trying to do that sometimes – the interesting question then got glossed Lost, over. Like, yeah. I think our friend uh, and yours, Paul Tenorio, asked four questions in one question, including, do you aim to have a, a head coach on the men's side in place for the Gold Cup? And that one did not get answered because I think three other ones were included. There were a lot of multi-part questions that then when you listen to them were not really multi-part as much as they were just four distinct questions. Uh, Joe, you got one in there, though, uh, about the tactics uh, that you you wanted to see or rather that you hoped or that you wanted to just know what Matt Crocker was going to bring, what his expectations were for the tactics. Before we do that, Joe, do you feel like a big deal? 
Uh, well, I, I, Joe think the, I think the line, yeah, so the, the, there's two lines. One is for uh, Neil Bluth, who's the, the press officer for U.S. Soccer, to pronounce your name correctly, which did yeah. not happen. Um, which, that's one. That was a flex because you just mispronounced his name right back. So Deal. shots Deal. across the back. Great work. This is good stuff. The other shots line is if you're in the, the front half of questions being asked, um, then I think you're, you've made it. And I was, I think, like second to last, third to last, something along those lines. But <laughs> it, it, was, it was you, Bells, and Donald Wine were the three. So good company, okay. I feel like. Saving, saving the best for last, baby. Um, but no, it was it was good. And, and we did learn some things right through this process. Taylor, you were taking notes diligently. I was trying to take notes diligently. And we learned a little bit more about Crocker's views on the game, which is really what I was asking him about. A big part of the sporting director role is to sort of set the stylistic foundation or, or to guide the program, the men's national team, the women's national team, the youth national teams, extended national teams, to guide all of those in a direction, right? And so I asked... Crocker essentially you're like what 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 style do you want to play like like how do you want US soccer teams to play he talked about wanting to control the ball in moments to have players that are savvy enough to work their way out of pressure and to take the sting out of the game in moments but also to press and to be aggressive and to play on the front foot he talked about wanting to build on in some ways at least Greg Berhalter's style and so even though there's a lot of buzzwords in, in press conferences like this and there's not usually a lot we can take away and I, I don't really think there's a lot we should take away from you know, the 45 minutes that Taylor, you and I both watched earlier. But I, I do think it is notable that it, it doesn't seem like Crocker wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and Berhalter may or may not be back. He he wouldn't comment specifically on Berhalter or Jesse Marsh's candidates. Um, talked about how that would be unprofessional, you know, just now getting into the fold. But, you know, it, it seems like there will be some thread of continuity on the men's side from where we've been and to where we're going. Maybe that all gets chucked out the window and it is Jesse Marsh after all, but no, I was sort of encouraged by that from this morning. Gus, I, I was encouraged by some of what he said. I think I was frustrated also by the lack of transparency. We've had that from the beginning when the investigation is ongoing and we are pursuing candidates. We can't talk about the candidates, but we have many different options and we're excited to talk to them. Then we talked to them and there were some of them. Then there were fewer. Then there were three. Now there is only the one. And here he is, but we can't talk about specifics. I started to get bothered by that a little bit, but I think uh, in talking before the show, it feels like you sort of hit the nail on the head with what our expectations of this role, what this position should be, which is basically not to see it as this overarching, he's going to control everything and make every major decision, but more so he's a person who is there for a couple different reasons, and if he does those things well, then we should be happy. I think one thing, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but I think one thing I love cheering for the national team myself. I think the national team has a ton of importance. I think we overvalue a lot of what happens with the national team, with the assumption that the people in charge at us soccer are like kingmakers across the sport. And that what Matt Crocker thinks about short goal, uh, short goal kicks or short corner kicks means every child in North America is going to learn that exact way and play that exact way. So I think there's a level of overreaction. I think the big key that these roles have is a figurehead. Um, being a soccer person in the room when the larger entity of U.S. soccer is making decisions, which is massive. And obviously, Cindy Parlo Cohn's soccer background compared to Sunil Galati and Carlos Cordero is much different. So I think there's less of a heavy importance there, but it still matters. And then obviously choosing the coach for the national team and sort of a distinct style all the way through to the youth national teams. That's where we'll get into it. I think that's what's interesting with Matt Crocker's resume, I think, is what England has done and sort of how he can bring some of that in. But I think I have said on this show, I have said it in many platforms, I don't really believe in the necessity of youth national teams that much anymore. And so even that influence, to me, has lessened um, as time has gone along. We don't have a residency program that produces our best players. So the U U.S. soccer is not instructing the best players outside of three and a half weeks a year maybe sometimes throughout their, you know, careers coming through until the full national team. So I don't think that has as much of an effect as it used to, but it's good for players to have some level of continuity to sort of understand what's coming when they move up. When you see it from the perspective, I kind of want to talk about the youth national teams a little bit more, but we'll put that on the back burner for now. Instead, I'll say this. Uh, he was asked uh, uh, up front, Matt Crocker, about what he's looking for in a head coach. Uh, obviously, he would not get into specifics of names or anything like that. Uh, but to your point, David, and him being somewhat more of a figurehead, his answers felt very 
good for branding purposes in he wanted uh, the foundations put in place uh, that we have put the foundations in place. We want them to continue to involve. We need the right leaders to give players ownership and responsibility. Uh, we have to kind of be aggressive. We want to be a front foot forward team. We want to be a problem solving team. We want to have the technical ability to execute the game plan, but also the individuality to play on our own. And it, it all felt like good buzzwords. I don't say that cynically. I say that as a way of saying, like, it felt like wording for basically we want to have an exciting program that will appeal to the most potential dual nationals, potential young players coming through to keep them interested, to keep them involved. It feels like that's kind of what his his purview is, is to bring in as many players as he can and to help U.S. soccer identify more talent and dual nationals as well. But it didn't feel like he was coming in with a 40 you know, 40 point plan, uh, 40 days, 40 points for how to fix us soccer or anything like that. It seems like he is much more about, uh, instilling some of the passion, some of the energy from Southampton and some of the approach from Southampton, but also I I expect a lot of like listening tours and meeting with people to get a better idea of, of where things stand with the Federation and what can be improved. Joe thoughts on that. Yeah, I think where we're sort of trending in this discussion is towards the dual national side, which I think we all agree is maybe the most important thing that a a sporting director for U.S. soccer can do. Again, they'll be responsible for, in some ways, setting the the general stylistic tone. But I mean, you know, Ernie Stewart was a sporting director before and and Vlaco's style wasn't really the same as Greg Baralther's style. And I'm not sure anybody out there could actually articulate what Vlaco's style actually is, including Vlaco. So there's challenges there. But when you look at the, the dual national side, you know, the U.S. right now is in uh, in the Balogun sweepstakes. They're in the, the, the recruiting process for Valoran Balogun, who is, I'm not trying to exaggerate, like a game-changing talent at the international level, specifically for a team like the U.S. that is just outside maybe the top 10 or 12 elite national teams in the world. Balogun is a player that can be a difference maker on that stage. The U.S. at the World Cup has Sergino Des starting at right back, has Yunus Musa starting in central midfield. Ricardo Pepe doesn't make that squad, but, you know, he's, he's coming out in Nations League and scoring goals. Dual nationals, because of of how international soccer works, and specifically because of how diverse the U.S. is and how massive it is, dual nationals have a major impact on the product that the U.S. men's national team, in particular, puts out on the field. And so having somebody who understands the importance of dual national recruiting, multinational recruiting, it's huge. And it seems like Matt Crocker, you know, follows in that line of thinking. He had a quote that said, international landscape has become almost like a club environment. And... For U.S. soccer, and and to their credit, they went out there and found somebody who has worked at the international level and who has worked at the club level. I don't know that we've actually gone through and done like the official background on who Crocker is. So he's 48 years old, former English Football Association head of development teams, talked about on the press conference how much he he values player development and having some uniformity across a, a, a platform like this. He talked about that stuff. He's also currently in the role at Southampton of director of football operations, and he'll be leaving that role at the end of the season and taking over full-time the sporting director role with the U.S. on August 2nd. So in the meantime, he's doing some work with the women's national team ahead of the World Cup. He's doing some work now on the hiring process for the USMNT managerial position. But like, this is a guy who's worked at the youth level. This is a guy who's worked at the senior level on the international stage. This is a guy who's been at the club level. It seems to me like his experiences in those realms and his understanding of the importance of multinational recruiting like all of that, his background, his experience, his pedigree, uh, in general, even though I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm on the importance of this role going forward, there are important decisions for him to make, and there will be important moments in his tenure. Like, I don't think you can really look at this hire and say, like, ah, this sucks. Like, he's not qualified. It seems pretty clear to me that this is a strong hire. There's value in it being outside of the the old boys club, in my mind. And it seems like he's he's qualified and ready for the job. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I think it is making me slightly more positive. I will say why in a moment. First, David, your thoughts. No, I do think when you talk about youth or national team recruiting, I do think England is in a similar space in the U.S. where it is somewhat um, consistent, where there's a lot of national teams where this isn't a relevant conversation. Brazil's not going out and recruiting dual nationals. South Korea is not either. So this that's that you are pulling someone, I think, from a program that has some experience with what a process of that looks like, how you go about it, how you talk to people. I think you're also bringing someone in who will carry a level of respect. You know, Southampton is a big academy. Um, and I think Taylor's to to one of the points you made of like 40-point plan written out, all that stuff. This is a soccer guy. Like he's a youth coach. He's an academy director. That's what he did before the stuff Joe talked about. 
He was Southampton's academy director before he got into England. He started as Cardiff City's academy director. He's a coach. So I think a lot of that stuff's natural for him where it didn't have to be put on and displayed because you could sit him down. And I think he has a lot of answers to a lot of the questions you say you would have because that's who he is. That's the life he's lived. I think that's really positive. And to have done it, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about what profile you want. And I don't think any of us had a good answer because these roles are unique. But to have someone who has done it on both the national team level or the FA level more specifically and with clubs, uh, that's the ideal scenario. Because you have someone who understands the slow moving pieces, I think, of a federation. How, how, you know, how often you do actually get in touch with players, like the things you can do from an FA point of view. But then you have someone who has worked in clubs and understands that side of things and that's kind of one of the issues you see with people who are only really national team based is they can't connect with sporting directors and coaches when you go over and have those meetings that Greg Berhalter has really led a lot of over the last few years of like, hey, we need this player for this Mexico game that's coming up in May and we'd love to get them a day early. We'd love to send them back maybe a day late, whatever it is, those relationships. I think someone like this, will it'll be easier for him to build those in favor of U.S. soccer. That's a very interesting point. I like that because he did also strike me as a pretty uh, affable fellow. He made a lot of jokes about the multi-tier questions and trying to make sure he was on top of everything. At the same time, did not come across to me the way uh, some English uh, folks have as being very like, here's how we do it in England, you peasants. Uh, (laughs) And I I appreciate that there did seem to be a, a curiosity for the American style and for the American system and for understanding it better and for learning about different groups who haven't maybe been incorporated as much. He was asked specifically about, uh, like the Spanish speaking population and bringing them more to the fold and basically said, like, I don't know enough to talk about that, but it's an area that I'm, I'm excited to look into and learn more about. And again, that could just be the, the kind of, uh, PR speak, uh, if you want to see it that way. But I think I'm choosing to see it more as a person who acknowledges their shortcomings such as they are, but then is also showing you that they can speak well on the spot. They can sort of speak with, with passion and intensity, but also with intelligence about the sport. And then I think with the background that you two have already pointed out, has a background in talent identification, has a background in the bureaucracy of federations at the FA level, and we should emphasize on both the men's and women's sides. It did seem to me like he is uh, going to continue to let Kate Margraff make the decisions on the women's side, and then he'll be there if needed. It didn't seem like he was planning to overhaul anything on the women's uh, side of things. But the academy, uh, like director roles, I think you're right there, David, that he's coming at it from a coaching perspective, and it just seems like there's a lot of boxes ticked, including that it's Southampton, who, yes, they're in the relegation zone, but uh, also historically have been excellent at developing talent. I think when he was uh, an academy manager at Southampton from 2006 to 2013, the players, they spotlighted him uh, being involved in identifying or having some role in developing were Luke Shaw, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Gareth Bale, and James Ward-Prowse. So uh, good Prowse in that a. regard. It just it just seems <laughs> like he, he ticks a lot of boxes that then he can come in and sort of be adaptable but be engaged versus this is how we did it, this is how we're going to do it, this will work. I think anybody who came in saying, I have a plan to win the World Cup in 2026, I would say, great. I'm immediately skeptical. Anybody who says, I'm here to do the job and figure things out, and I'm excited to get involved, and it's an honor yeah. to be here. They're not saying much, but simultaneously, I, I appreciate that they're not overpromising. Yeah, and, and anybody who comes in, Taylor, to your point, and says, you know, the 2026 World Cup is ours, like, that we're going to win it, like, they're just not very smart, right? Like, I think that just displays <laughs> yeah. a, a huge ignorance for where the U.S. men's national team program is right now and the international game as a whole, right? Like, you want to prepare your team to have the most talent possible, which is where the dual national team recruiting stuff comes in. It's where the you know youth development pathway comes in in as much as U.S. soccer has control over some of that stuff. And, and you want to prepare them to play good soccer that is effective and will help your talent pool win games, right? That's that's your goal as a sporting director to establish culture in addition to those things and, and to be involved in those kinds of conversations. Again, like I don't know that Matt Crocker is the guy. Actually, let me rephrase. I'm fairly confident that Matt Crocker is not going to single-handedly change the fortunes of the U.S. men's national team program and single-handedly propel the U.S. women's national team to success World Cup after World Cup. That's just not going to happen. But in this open role, after Ernie Stewart left, to have a guy who's coming in and seems qualified and capable and eager and knowledgeable in a lot of different ways, like at least for right now, in day one of his time on the job, I think things are trending in a, in a good direction. 
the last thing I'll say about this, that's probably not true. I don't know why I started that sentence that way. <laughs> this got done quicker than I expected. I think that is a positive for U.S. soccer. I thought this was going to drag out longer. I don't know how long the coaching search will now drag out, but we had a conversation on this show a week or two ago, and I was like, felt like the spinning stuff around me of like this Anthony Hudson time warp of how long is this guy going to be the head decision maker on the men's side? How long is this going to last? And I had no idea that there was an end in sight. And so the the coach, you know, you said it, he's not going to a hundred percent start until after the Southampton season, the coaching search might take a while, but this feels like a step in the right direction. Uh, And that to me is positive because as much as I want to say there's plenty of time, it is like 2026 is coming. Yeah. This was a late World Cup in 2022. It's not a full four years. Like Stuff like that is starting to click down. Yeah. Uh, Joe said it, I think, briefly, but to, to say it one more time, he did begin the press conference by saying or confirming, I think City Parlo Cohen confirmed that his role begins on August 2nd, and then he clarified uh, that he is he does have like special allowance from Southampton to help prepare the women's team for the World Cup in whatever capacity he can, and then to work on hiring a new men's coach. So it he does just seem wants like a free trip to New Zealand. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. Uh, but it does seem like he can kind of start doing some of the work. And I would assume he had an idea of the profile or style he was looking for uh, when he interviewed. I doubt he just came in and said like, yeah, you know, I'm excited to talk to some people and see what happens. And they were like, you are the guy. So I'm hoping there was a a little bit more uh, specificity to that interview. But we did get some of those buzzwords again. He wants the team to be fearless. He wants them to be confident. He wants them to have technical ability and intelligence to control the game. Uh, he wants defenders who can defend 1v1s. Serginho Dest gets nervous. Uh, he can not rely on others for coverage, who can play high up the pitch in tight spaces, press high uh, defensively, be very aggressive, not always have to look to the sidelines to make their decisions. So again, he, he described an energetic, exciting team that can play high-pressing soccer but can also do the defensive side of things and can figure out an opponent. These are all very ideal things, I would say, but not very specific. And again, I say that is not necessarily a bad thing because so often with new GMs, new sporting directors, new managers, they make these declarative statements of we're going to redefine the way people understand American soccer. And then that becomes the thing that they are judged by for the next four years. And so I don't really begrudge him for not wanting to make any of those grandiose statements and then basically be like putting his head into the noose while saying the the grandiose statement in his introductory press conference. So, But when he gets in the room with players or the coach, that's what mm -hmm. they should say. Right, that should be the yeah, goal. But absolutely. as you said, when Don Garber said MLS would be the best league in the world and put a date on it, guess what happens when the date comes up and like that doesn't really help anyone? But you would yeah. hope that's the passion, that's the focus inside the the identity of the organization. Can I? Project can I just twenty ten, David? Project just one more, just one more thing for me. Um, and this really is like my last thought, unless Taylor. It has more to be because you said that to um, start the sentence. Deal. I'll make it happen. Matt Crocker is an elite name. Like saying Matt Crocker today several times has brought me actual joy. It's just a good name. Like I don't know much about this guy other than his credentials. I don't know him as a person. I just like the name, so I'm I'm bought in. It's got it's got Chris Traeger vibes. Matt Crocker, it does, Chris Traeger, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean something being a croc doesn't have great like connotations. So there is also that potentiality. But for now, let's just hope that things go well. Let's hope we get a coaching. It's hire. a national team. You throw everything in the crock pot. You come back hey. in eighteen months to two years, and it's. A beautiful meal. <laughs> I wouldn't say beautiful, but I would say delicious and edible meal. If I don't know if anything cooked in a crock pot can ever be de- described as Just throw a little beautiful. greens on top. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll get back to talking uh, maybe less so U.S. soccer sporting director, more so Major League Soccer roster moves. Just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, 
it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe Lowry, let's talk primary transfer window. First of all, why are they being so disrespectful to the other transfer window by labeling one primary? They really did the secondary transfer window dirty, didn't they? They really did, which it's not even really fair because the secondary transfer window, at least after the season starts, is the big one. I guess the primary window technically opened like last year, and so teams have been making moves for a while. Um, but yeah, secondary transfer window got got sort of put in the bin on that one a little bit. Yeah, that closed. Okay, Gus, actually, can you explain this to me? Because I thought the window closed yesterday. Are we just hearing announcements, like official announcements, and all the paperwork yeah. has already been taken care of? What's going on here? Yeah, it just takes time sometimes when all of them happen at the end, and there's not really the forced issue like you have in the NBA and NFL of like you have to say it now. So for the most part, what you've seen is rumors that have come out because the teams have said it's done. And then either the paperwork takes more time or sometimes the teams are planning announcements specifically if it's a less the trades we saw because there's not like huge names. Like a lot of times, like let's say a Paul Ariola had gone to the LA Galaxy, they would want Paul Ariola to be there for a big announcement moment and, th- and stuff like that. So everything we're seeing has already happened. Right. Okay. There you go. Boom. Why is the primary window seen as the less exciting one is it mostly just because the secondary one is after the european season so more players can move yes and also one of the tough parts about major league soccer is like you don't really see a lot of these players there's a lot of players that come to mls that no one has seen play and no one i say fans us like all of that so in the summer you also at least know what the teams look like so it's sort of like, oh, DC has not had a left winger the last two weeks. They've looked poor. Here is a left winger where in the offseason, while it's exciting, it's all of it's more abstract. I think it's tougher to sort of put your finger on like, this is the move they needed. Speaking of DC United acquiring people, Joe Lowry, you, you I can't tell if you kicked a, a bit of like a beehive today with your tweet about what DC United did. Can you talk us through what they did and then uh, what the response was that you saw? Yeah, so DC United traded for Christian Dahomey from the Vancouver Whitecaps for a number yeah. that I, I don't think we know yet at this point no, in time. Don't. So they made they made a deal, and I tweeted <laughs> I tweeted basically that's like I don't understand I what it. DC United are doing. That that was essentially what my tweet was. Like I don't I don't understand what their approach is to player recruitment. Like we're seeing players come in from all over the map. We're seeing a huge mix of ages. We're seeing that Wayne Rooney doesn't really know how or in what shape he wants this team to play. And Dahomey is a guy that doesn't really have a position. You know, maybe Rooney has a very clear 
vision for, for how he wants to use Dahomey. And I, I've also read somewhere, and I can't remember where, and I, I wish I could because I could give it either uh, credit or blame if this is wrong. I've read that Vancouver are, are potentially keeping some of Dahomey's salary. So, you know, if it's a low allocation money number that they're sending back to Vancouver and Vancouver are, are keeping some of that number, that's not a huge problem. I just don't think after I got a number of, of genuinely like thought-provoking responses in the replies to my tweet, like, ultimately, my, my reason for not liking this deal is because I don't think Christian Dahomey is a very good soccer player. Like, like I don't understand. I, I think you should try to sign good players when you can, and I'm not really sure that Dahomey is going to be that for D.C. So, again, just sort of a, a bizarre transfer window. They've also got uh, Mohamed Jahaz, who was arrested in Sweden, like, recently. So maybe Dahomey is going to be like, cover on the left. I, I just have no understanding of what D.C. United are, are really doing right now. I think that's a very fair point. That main core point of DC's chaos on the trade. I'd be surprised if they gave up anything. This feels like a salary dump from Vancouver. He doesn't fit in their plans. And I think for DC right now, the only clear positive is if you get crosses into Benteke, you can be dangerous. They don't really have wide players. So I just think Dahomey is an option. He can play as a second forward. He can play, as a winger, he could potentially play as a wing back if that's how you want to use him. They lost Martin Rodriguez to a season-ending injury. Ravel Morrison is training with my men's league team. Um, so, like, they just – I think this was – some of the moves we see here, it's like, yeah, that's another MLS player on their roster. Like, some teams don't have that many of them, and sometimes they make moves, and you're like, yeah, that's one more. Is that one better than anything they have? Does it provide anything else? No. That's just another one. Yeah, and, and to add one more beat, sorry. Um, I, I know I'm kind of just uncorking on DC United, and they didn't really do, like you said, guys, like this is a probably a fine move. It's not a spectacular one, and I'm not high on Dahomey, but like it kind of just is what it is. I found the report, according to Stephen Goff, $350,000 in allocation money going to Vancouver, but it sounds like Vancouver will be picking up most of Dahomey's six-figure salary, like $600,000, $700,000 salary. So Okay, it's it's a big number, and yeah. that's that's not nothing for DC. So again... Not not crazy. What I don't understand is is Wayne Rooney talked with folks last year. He gets the job later in the season. Talks about how he's going to play the kids. He's going to give some of the younger guys a chance. He starts, you know, Akinboni the first game of the season, young center back. We haven't really seen much more of that. We saw Teddy KDP, uh, Kude Pietro play some of the attack earlier this year, and and now DC United have chances to play their kids, and we're just not seeing it. Like it seems like they're going out of their way to acquire other options to avoid playing these guys. And I'm not in this environment every day. I'm not around the team. Like, maybe Kude Pietro is just not there. And I don't think he's, like, a crazy good player or anything like that. But I just don't understand what the approach is in terms of player recruitment, in terms of, like, how you're building a culture. Rooney's maybe going to be gone. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Like, I don't know. Sorry to to dump all the DC United stuff on you, Taylor. But I'm, I just don't understand really what's going on there right now. Well, speaking of not understanding things, I'm going to take us into the murky world of MLS salary budget. So if Vancouver is keeping his salary, like, does Some. that hit their budget then? How does that impact their ability to spend this season? Yeah, Vancouver's probably keeping some of his salary this year um, because his deal will then move over to D.C. after the season. So for Vancouver, they don't re- it, they're probably not going to go out and spend that much. So for them, it's getting him off the books and maybe it allows them to move someone else's deal around a little, use allocation money, put someone on salary cap that maybe was Tam, something like that. Um, Plus just get the player out because they don't want him on their team and he doesn't really play that much. And then going forward that way, they don't have to deal with moving him in the future because he's already gone. But DC probably hadn't allocated enough to be able to take him in to their books. And so there's that sort of agreement in the middle um, or the allocation money that Vancouver's picking up is more useful to them because they can buy someone down in a different stratosphere of TAM or DP rather than saving the money as the salary cap. Also point out Vancouver let their, one of their sporting directory guys go a few weeks back, who was one of the big talent ID pl- people that brought Dahomey as well as some other players in. So I think there's just a level of trying to turn the page and move on to some other pieces. Yeah, that's I, I believe the name there is it's either Nico or Nikos Overhuel who's working for Vancouver, a guy from the Netherlands. And and he brought in I didn't realize he brought in Dahomey, but I'm I'm sure that's true. He's also like helped them bring in 
genuinely very good players that have been effective. So Kubas is, is sort of a, a player that was brought in while he was there. Julian Gressel, I believe, was brought in while he was there. Like, he's had success. Overview had success there. So, yeah, that that was sort of a strange decision. I think Vancouver are now benefiting from the roster that he helped put together, and now he's gone, and, and maybe they are continuing to progress. But that whole situation in Vancouver's front office, I don't think much has come out about that, but that was strange to me. Uh. Joe, were there any moves uh, of the last like 24, 48 hours that you did like, you do feel like it could have sort of major implications, or are these all sort of uh, putting hats on hats? Um, okay, that I did like. There are some interesting ones. I think there's one in particular that I like for both parties. So there were a number of different trades yesterday. This is Columbus getting Malte Amundsen from, the, from New York City FC. Left back, Columbus just had their starting left back, Will Sands, who's James Sands' brother. Fun fact, if you didn't know, James Sands had a brother playing for the Columbus crew. Reportedly tore his ACL, so they needed some cover there, and NYCFC have like 87 different left backs, and Amundsen was not starting for them. He'd been a big player before, uh, was a big part of their season leading to MLS Cup a couple years back. They traded him to the crew for up to $500,000 in general allocation money. So in general, for, for Columbus to get a... Not an elite starter, but someone who can get minutes at that spot and, and be a productive player to get that for a, a decent but not exorbitant fee and for NYCFC to get some value out of a player they weren't using. Goss, to me, this felt like kind of a win-win for both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think four hundred to 500000 the going rate for like a starter in Major League Soccer. So I don't think it's a great deal if you're on that number, but it, as long as you get the player you want, it's fine. He's also on a pretty low salary. So it's not like Columbus then is going to have to deal with this for a while. Um, And as you said, they need a starter in that position. It gives them more flexibility. I think he showed at NYCFC he was starter level, borderline, um, and wingback's probably even more comfortable or is more comfortable for him than as a natural fullback. But NYCFC has hit on fullbacks over and over again. So he had no spot there. So I agree with you. I thought this was a win-win. It's funny because Will Sands was in NYCFC player so they're replacing one with another there obviously in a little bit of a different category can i move into some other ones actually i have a question of genuine ignorance first goss for you uh when you see columbus acquire amundsen does that tell you anything about their player identification or their talent identification in the sense of like like you said this is about what the going rate is so it's not a great deal but it's not a bad deal but for you when you see this do you think like oh Columbus know how to identify a good left back when they need one in the circumstances or like are there other options that you think would have been equally smart or smarter No I don't think there was an obvious option out there in MLS and I I feel fairly comfortable in saying Columbus values MLS experience really highly. When you look at the moves they've made over the last three or four years, they bring in a lot of MLS veterans rather than going and getting a player from another league and seeing if they'll fit in. So the move makes sense for them of like, you're probably paying an extra 100000 or so for a guy who has been in the league, understands the travel, understands what the fields are like, like all those little things we talk about. And Columbus will value that over everything. And there's not another obvious left back out there where you're like, this guy's a pure starter and I can't believe he doesn't start on this team. Now you may talk about another move that you liked. Thank you. Well, for that. I thought, uh, I thought Joe was going to go with Chinyashiki on this one. Um, the Charlotte for trading him to RSL for Justin Miram, Justin Miram, obviously towards the end of his career, I actually sort of think he will have a factor for Charlotte because in limited minutes, he's still effective. He is a true wide player. That's like a thing. Charlotte, has struck out on at DPs, U22, all that stuff. Uh, and then Shinyashiki is an interesting player. I thought we saw the best of him when he got to Charlotte last year. Of He doesn't really have a pure position, but he's a goal scorer, and he makes positive things happen in the right amount of minutes. Like, I don't think you want to start this guy 29 times for a season, but when you look at RSL, you're looking at a team that's looking to be better than the sum of their parts. He's a half piece. If you match him up properly with an Anderson Julio and a Rubio Rubin and a young Andres Gomez, if you push the right buttons of when to play them versus who and their form and how to ride them, there's enough there to get enough production, I think, for RSL to make a playoff run, to be in the playoffs, to have confidence that they can beat teams, which they've done the last two years in the playoffs. Um, And I thought this was a move that they needed to make of you needed to bring in a little bit more minutes in those attacking positions to take some pressure off the guys you had yeah I like Shin Yashiki as a player I think he's a good player I, I've heard 
that maybe he's on a bigger contract than what's in the MLSPA release. Well, and he so, signed or, a new deal at the end of last year, so it won't right. be updated in the MLS, MLSPA. Right, so it, it should be pretty significantly higher than what it is now listed in, in the salary release. But, you know, RSL don't spend a lot of money, right? They don't have a lot of big-name players, so they can take the salary cap hit. I'm not saying that's, you know, always the best idea. You still want to be careful with how you're managing your roster. But I think straight-up Shinyashiki is a better player than Justin Miram. And so if you have the room and, and think that he can be that level of a difference maker for you at that salary cap hit. Like, yeah, I think you make the move. I, I think maybe Miram is a slightly better fit for how Latanzio wants to use his wingers, can stay a little bit wider, can be a true width provider on, on probably the left side, could be on the right side as well. Shinyashiki didn't seem like fit that role terribly well, was maybe more of a Swiderski backup than anything else. So, yeah, I like this move. One other move that I think is like large-ish in MLS at this point is Nashville trading CJ Sapong to Toronto FC. So Toronto sent them Lucas McNaughton, who's, I think, a pretty bad center back, but <laughs> Gary Smith is the center back whisperer in some ways. So, you know, maybe that's fine. They sent McNaughton and $200,000 in allocation money to Nashville. Toronto then went out and traded for uh, a center back from Miami, Mabika, for $200,000. So essentially they swapped center backs and, and tossed some allocation money uh, to Miami and also CJ Sapong. Sapong hasn't scored a goal in a hot minute. He has not been prolific this year, but pretty much nobody is for Nashville outside of Hani Mukhtar. It seems to me, Goss, and I don't know how you feel about this, he's an upgrade on the other options that Toronto have up front. I mean, Iowa Canola and, and Diamande have not been fit. We've seen a lot of different looks. We saw Insigne and Bernadeschi playing up top together for stretches of the most recent game, and, and that's not a great look. Like, they need a reference point. And Sapong is very capable of being, like, the third or fourth guy that you're looking for attacking production from. And, and in Toronto, he will be. So it seems like they got everything on the salary cap side figured out and, and they've sorted through that stuff. I don't know if this is like the best long-term move, nor do I know all the details around Sapong's contract and the inner workings of these deals. But if you're looking at, at whether a team got better or not, I think Toronto's roster straight up did get a bit better from yesterday to today. I completely agree with you. And I think that's one of those moves you look at. Um, and my understanding is Sapong's on a one-year deal. They have an option for next year, so they're not tied to this longer if they don't want to be, where he's going to make Bernadeschi and Insigne better because neither of those guys are center forwards, and it just looked bad. They they were in positions that made them worse last game, and why would you do that with the two most expensive players in your club's history who can be good at what they do? I also, historically, CJ Sapong scores goals when he arrives at a new team and in the last year of his contract. That is like the CJ Sapong dossier. So TFC would seem to be hitting on both of those, which could be bingo at the end of this game for them. Um, and I agree with you. And like Diamande hasn't been fit, hasn't been helpful. Io's still an unknown if he ever is fit. And then to bring in Amy Mabika, just to throw it in at the end. Mabika started 14 games last year for Inter Miami. And they were the second half of the year. And they were one of the best defenses at the time. He's like 6'6". He's gigantic. Um, not a great passer. Doesn't move super comfortably. But that is in saying they don't lose anything from getting rid of Lucas McNaughton and bringing him in. And so it really becomes 400000 for CJ Sapong, which, as I said, I think is a fair going rate for a player of that quality, of that experience, if he can help your team legitimately. Uh, so a couple teams there helping themselves. The Galaxy helping themselves, question mark, reacquiring Mauricio Cuevas after failing to get Paul Areola. Uh, Goss, wh what's the story with the pursuit of Areola and then the reacquisition of Cuevas? I think the pursuit of Areola is every good... Well, hmm, I just put myself in a dangerous <laughs> spot there. Well, maybe we'll give Will Coons credit on this. <laughs> MLS teams are always asking about other MLS players. Oh, That's so like good. sort of the way this works. Can I, as a person who doesn't uh, always get the MLS insidery jokes, Joe, why did that crack you up so Goss, much? Goss was about to say like every good MLS CSO yeah. like is making these calls and then realized he was talking about the Galaxy. <laughs> and so that put him in a, in a compromised position and he sort of had to walk back and now is bringing Will Coonson. Anyway, cool. continue. Just Goss. wanted to make sure that we, yeah. we, we made that really, really public. Yes. We're all anyway. on the same page now. But you should be asking about players. Paul Areola is from the Southern California area. Spent 37 seconds in the Galaxy Academy. Obviously has moved to Dallas over the last year, so him and his family is a little bit more mobile right now. The question makes sense there. He's better than everyone on the LA Galaxy at any wide position, whatever you want to call it. I doubt it would be a wingback if he got there. Like That probably alone sets them back into a 4-3-3. 
Um, so they asked the question, but Dallas gave up $2 million allocation for him, which is a record last year. So to get him means he either needs to walk in and say, I'm not going to play another game here, or LA Galaxy have to hit you over the head with a massive deal, which I don't know that they have the resources for. The context here being, after yesterday, the LA Galaxy cannot acquire a player from outside of Major League Soccer till the end of this season. So the secondary transfer window, the, you know, ugly duckling of this whole thing that Taylor has established for us in the family dynamics of transfer windows in MLS. Coming up, other MLS teams can go out and sign players from anywhere around the world. And because many of the leagues around the world are open at that point, it's actually easier. The Galaxy won't be able to do that. They can still acquire MLS players. But if you come to me and say, oh, we'd love this guy, I'd say, yeah, me too. Let's make that price three times because there's no other option for you. So the Galaxy were kind of up against it. The question makes sense. It was probably never going to happen. Mauricio Cuevas, though, is interesting because you do have a Galaxy team. This is now like the third time in the last seven years where they've brought someone new in. And that new person, I think, has said, why does our academy suck? What are we doing wrong? So we saw... um, why can't I remember the Dutch person's name who used to run the Galaxy for a little? Uh, Dennis DeClosa. We saw Dennis DeClosa come in and start firing people and do that. And then we saw after that Greg Vanny come in and start firing people and do that. Um, and so I think this is an example of like Mauricio Cuevas should have always been on an LA Galaxy contract. They were not able to get the negotiation done. And that was a issue for the Galaxy for a number of years. When you look at some of the young American players in Europe that are playing in the second division, third division, reserve teams that could have been with the Galaxy. Cuevas is one of those players. He is a like-for-like swap for Julian Araujo, who they sold to Barcelona. So it seems like this is coming back to him. And what I've heard is pieces around his camp have changed that maybe made the initial negotiation tough. He's not playing for Club Bruges. And I think they basically came back to the table and said, let's do this the way we should have done it. Let's do this the right way. So now he'll come back and... There's a pretty clear position there for him to fill for this team. So I'm actually really excited about this move from like a U.S. soccer perspective. I think Galaxy fans should be excited as well. I have a ridiculous hypothetical relating to this uh, news, but we're going to save that one for uh, one more break. Then we will be back uh, for that and much, much more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, we are back. Here is my random idea for you all, or my random question, rather. So what is a team, bear with me, what is a team that is like like most in need of money in Major League Soccer who would be okay with doing some uh, like morally flexible things? 
Toronto potentially. I think their their cap is pretty max, although they do have some flexibility with their with their roster and those high leverage spots. Scott, do you got anybody? That would be the big one that stands out. Maybe a Nashville just on a DP side because they don't have that much money and they spent it on Ake Loba and it hasn't worked. Maybe Austin is in that conversation as well. Pretty much okay, struck so out on all their big money signings. So one of those teams, here's my idea. If they can only sign MLS players, the Galaxy, could the Galaxy have one of those teams bring in a player from Europe and then basically already have the existing agreement of then we will sign them from you immediately for an increased fee. 100%. I'm pretty sure because the only, besides MLS saying no, which I think they are allowed to do mm-hmm. as a league, um, I think the only thing that would stand in the way is you can't register for multiple teams. But because MLS is a single entity league, it's not multiple teams. So like that would be the fear was a player coming, come to you, comes there, moves three teams in one window, I don't think FIFA-wise you're allowed to do that, except I'm pretty sure if you don't sign a DP contract and you sign with Austin and then you move to the Galaxy, I think it counts as the same. Wait, so my, my question then to follow up would be, because that's fascinating, and Taylor, I love this hypothetical. Um, you should be employed by the LA Galaxy with this kind of creative thinking. It feels like the thing that they would do. You should work for FC Cincinnati, because Chris Albright flipped like an allocation spot for like 700000 last year. <laughs> let's just use a specific example and just say, I don't know why this player came to mind, because the Galaxy don't really need a number 10. But let's say Bruno Fernandez, just to have a number, like a name attached to this hypothetical. So Toronto FC, go out and snag Bruno Fernandez for Manchester United for, you know, a ridiculously low fee because yeah, there's was, been a scandal of some sort. I was um, trying to think of like a player who's out of contract, basically, right. who you can get, get for very cheap okay. but would make out a of, team better. Because my, my question was, how does the transfer fee process yeah. work, right? Because the Galaxy can't pay Toronto FC a transfer fee, at least not yet, in this version of MLS. So they'd have to trade allocation money, I would assume, or some other, you know, peanuts and, and bag of chips. But I don't think Toronto are going to be too keen on that. So, all right, for out of contract players does open up the window slightly. Yeah, that that was my thinking. Is is you go? I'm looking at transfer market right now because we do know we do know that Toronto like to scour transfer market. They like to scour Serie A transfer market pages. So there is a player out of contract named Lionel Messi. Oh no way! Korean Benzema. If Messi briefly signs for Nashville, we all know what's up. If Adrian Rabio shows up drinking wine in Austin, Texas, honestly, very down. Very down yeah. for that. All right. Happen. That is a very good example. 28-year-old Adrian Rabio out of contract this year. Does feel like he would be a very good player for, say, the Galaxy. Why not? Uh, so, yeah. If, if like, he were then signed because he's on a free. So, let me he were just brought in by Austin and then moved to L.A. after that. That could theoretically happen. Where I started I with this is I don't think it would work with DP contracts. Because ah. I'm pretty sure teams sign DPs. So it would have to be someone lower who's on a league contract, which could be Tam or under. You're describing Adrian Rabio, so that works out really yeah, well. Yeah, true. Thank you. I am. See, uh, people will get annoyed with MLS for these obscure rules. Yeah, this is where I, th- they just don't like where I think fun. it's hilarious. They just don't like to have yeah. fun. Well, exactly. this is, so this is the funny part about when you talk to people who are really good at the rules in MLS, and you're like, man, don't you wish they were all gone and you could just be like doing whatever you want? And they're like, no. No, yeah. All of these people are idiots. I'm good at this. So, like, I'm playing the angles that none of these other people are, and it makes it easier. I think they wish there was more transparency so we knew that they were good at it. That seems to be the one takeaway I get from a lot of these executives who have done better is like, oh, I wish everyone knew that I just stole 100,000 allocation from this team because they made a mistake. Um, But, yeah. That's that's the world's most specific support group that I can think of is uh, very good GMs who don't feel appreciated coming together to talk about the moves they pulled off and how great they were. That feels like something that does happen maybe drunkenly at MLS All-Star, and probably. that's a conversation I would want to be a part of. Sadly, I don't think I probably will ever be invited. Uh, gentlemen, any other moves uh, from the last 48 hours or so that you think are worth mentioning here uh, on this episode? We're in my nerdiest space, Danny Leva being loaned to Colorado. It's a great development for Major League Soccer because young players need to play and a lot of teams have bad rosters. And acknowledging that there can be positives on both sides is like big. And I think having players get more opportunity is big. And so Danny Leva, young center mid at Seattle, they have like seven of them. 
So he's being loaned for the year to Colorado who needs players in that position. Um, he, I think, can bring something a little bit different for them, especially passing into the final third and being a little more goal dangerous. And Colorado won't have an option to buy. So Colorado's just going to use him for the year as a successful player, they hope. Seattle will hopefully use them to develop him to where they think he can be. That's positive. Like, that's what we're here for. And a lot of the complaints around homegrown territories and all of this is getting in the way of any young player's development. For their their good, for the good of the sport in this region, you can talk national teams after that as well. Um, and so I think this is a really exciting move in like a bigger picture. I also love Danny Leva. Uh, I'm glad that you love Danny Leva. Joe, any other moves for you? Uh, literally the only one that I'm aware of that's actually happened that we haven't mentioned, so just to be complete here, is Houston signing Ibrahim Aliou, Nigerian 21-year-old attacker signed from Croatia. That's it. That's all I've got. Apparently the, the data really liked him. I don't know a single thing about him, but the Dynamo need attacking help, and so maybe Aliou will be that guy. I'm well-versed in this world, Joe. Whenever you say the player's name with a question mark on the end of it, you've told me what I need to know about your familiarity Correct. with that player. Correct. Well played. Man, <laughs> that's, that's a good spot from you, Taylor. In six weeks when he has five goals, Joe's going to be yeah. like, this is why I came on the show Called originally. It. Called I was it. so excited. I've occasionally had those moments where I am very confident that I predicted like this player is going to come big and then I go back and listen and I threw him in with like five other players very quickly without being very committal to it. But you know what? I mentioned it so it counts. (laughs) (laughs) The list method indeed. Uh, All right. Uh, We've got uh, CONCACAF Champions League this week. We've got US Open Cup this week. We had MLS last weekend. Uh, Any moments from last weekend that you all uh, haven't had the opportunity to talk about uh, to the level you would like or anything that you found particularly interesting that you want to discuss today? Yeah, one that we didn't touch on yesterday, I don't believe we touched on it anyway, is NYCFC's win over Dallas. And I know, Goss, you and the Extra Time folks talked some about this, but I think we're watching NYCFC round into the team we thought they would be. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I, I, I thought we would see a striker brought into this group before the primary transfer window ended. Clearly, they are happy enough at the moment with Santi Rodrigo, well, Santi Rodriguez, excuse me, doing that job, that they didn't feel like they needed to go out there and, and settle for something they didn't want just to get a deal over the line. So we will see, I would imagine, a striker brought in in the summer for them in the secondary transfer window. But against Dallas in a 3-1 win for NYCFC, Santi Rodriguez started up top as the number nine, not really playing a, a classic big man striker role because he's not. He's much more of a, a half-space guy or a number 10 but he did a good job. Like NYCFC playing at City Field, which is a much more pleasing viewing experience than it is to watch them at Yankee Stadium. Like they, they looked really good. They were clean in possession. They built from the back well. I've been incredibly impressed by Micha Ilenich for them at, at right back, 18-year-old Slovenian player who can hit a ball like almost no one else in MLS can. Like he's a, a Julian Gressel caliber right-footed player on that right side. I've just been very impressed with how NYCFC have built this roster on the fly, bringing back Rodriguez, getting Sands back into the team. That's two high-level MLS starters. Getting Richie Ledesma back from PSV, like that's that's been huge for them as well. He starts in this game and plays 65 minutes and has looked very good for NYCFC. You know, we're seeing this team evolve. We're seeing them become really what I thought they would be when we did our preseason previews. It was pretty predictable that they would round into form when they had the talent here, and that's exactly what's happening right now. Uh, Goss, for you, any thoughts on the weekend that was? Um, I, I think I'm worried about Minnesota. It felt like they came out the gate strong and felt like they were maximizing who they were. Going to Seattle and losing isn't in itself an issue. What, what does that mean when you say maximizing who they were? Who were they? They don't have, obviously, Reynoso. So they don't have an elite chance creator. They don't have an elite goal scorer. Um, they've got a lot of really good defensive pieces. They have, I think, a midfield that can be interesting and you have a lot of solid defenders who are clean on the ball. And so you, you're not going to create a ton of chances, yeah. but you can make the game be played the way you want it to. And they went to Dallas week one. They went to St. Louis. They were able to sort of sit deep. They were able to create the chances that they want and they were able to stifle other teams. But there's only, I, I think there's a limit to that unless you perfect it there is a limit to how long you can sort of rely on that and need to be perfect in every game. And I think Minnesota's sort of bumping up against that. And if, you know, they brought, they brought in Jinsing Bong. So they're hoping that that helps a ton. I think it's hard for young players, attacking players to carry teams. 
So I don't know how much you're going to get quickly from that. And so, I don't know. This was another tough week for Minnesota. Less the loss and more just, I don't think they created a chance in this game. I don't think they were in the final. Th- I don't think they got into the box the first 30 minutes. Like, this was a pretty soft performance from them. I am adding they have a midfield that can be good to my list of things that you're telling me with not a- without actually telling me, yeah. I feel like, David. Yes. Yeah. I like Kervin um, Ariaga. I like Robin Ludd. Good for you. I'm very happy that you do. <laughs> um, uh, let's talk CCL for a moment. Uh, Joe, how are you feeling about uh, the, the big one, the Philly LAFC uh, one that we have looming? I'm stoked. I wish these teams were on opposite sides of the bracket and we got one MLS versus one Liga Mekis team on both sides Agreed. because I think that is the the best part of these kinds of games in this in this Champions League competition. What I will say is if any two MLS teams had to meet right now mm, in this yeah. stage of this competition, these are the two, right? You know, being there in person for MLS Cup last year, like one of the most ridiculous soccer games I've ever seen in person or otherwise. Just an absurd game. LAFC come out on top. And Philly now are just starting to refine their form. They maybe don't have the same level of, of top-tier quality that LAFC do. But, you know, they start the season hot. Then they progress in CCL. Last weekend, they absolutely come out and, and dominate Toronto FC and, and score four goals. We talked a bit about that on yesterday's show. Like, they are showing how dangerous they can be. And LAFC are still undefeated this season. So they have a ton of quality. Everybody knows it at this point. To have the first game being, you know, in in Pennsylvania is fantastic. Like, to see Philly at home against LAFC is going to be a, a really, really good game tomorrow night. And, I mean, the return leg next week is going to be great as well. I think these are two of the best teams in MLS. And like I said, if any of them had to meet in this stage ahead of the final, yeah, these would be the two that I'd handpick. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. Like, this is, I think it was Seattle NYCFC last year in the semifinals, yeah. which felt good of, like, Seattle were built for it. NYCFC were coming off MLS Cup. But this feels like how you change sort of the perception of this tournament is two best teams, MLS Cup rematch, arguably the greatest game in MLS history. Both teams still have a ton of talent. It's not like either of these teams unloaded and we're like, okay, we won and we're moving on. And so this feels like a big moment to me. And then as Joe said, you add in like being at home. For Philly, they lost, I believe... Supporter shield in first place and home field advantage on goal difference or goal scored. No, goal difference because goal scored. They were like the best team in MLS history. Um, And so I think for Philly, they're going into this saying like, we're going to show you we were right. We're going to show you that if we were healthy and home last year, we would have won MLS Cup. And this is just that unique experience of an ability for a professional team with the same group to get revenge. Because it's so hard. We see this even when you talk about LeBron going to five straight finals against the Warriors. It's like players change. Teams change. These two teams are very similar. LAFC less than Philly, but they're very similar. The protagonists, I think, are the same. And for the moment to come this soon right after is so unique. And so I'm really excited for this semifinal. I think both of the home games for the two crowds are going to be electric. I think it's going to be unique and it sets up for, as Joe said, an MLS League MX final, which is probably dream scenario for a lot of people. And all four of the teams that are left are really good teams. I'm very excited for that one. I'm very excited for all these things. Thank you, gentlemen, for talking through many different topics today. You've made me excited about potential MLS transfers and the Galaxy doing weird things, but also the moves that have already happened, as well as uh, the sporting director position being filled at U.S. Soccer. That feels like we talked about that two weeks ago, and it was about 50 minutes ago. Uh, So good stuff, fellas. Covered a lot of ground. David Goss, thank you. I'm sorry that the sporting director position did not work out, so you'll have to continue to slum it here on TSS. It's okay. I'm interviewing for the new general manager role at the New York Knicks, so I'll just take that. Oh, boy. <laughs> that, one, that one could be tough. That one could be tough. David, also, thank you for coming out. David, thank you for coming out uh, and uh, doing the, the live. Watch along with us. Uh, you did your best to, te- to keep Tom Bogart in line throughout. Uh, you added great value and great energy, uh, but really just appreciate you supporting us and then uh, going out for drinks afterwards. And uh, walking home through Times Square at 3 a.m. and resigning yourself to taking a photo. All very fun times for me. Uh, the key to that whole thing was that I left my credit card at the original bar, and the next day I had to tell my in-laws who were visiting that I had to go back 
to get the credit card that I had left at 3 a.m. at a bar the night before. It sounded very professional. So, <laughs> nailed it. Joe Lowry, always sounding professional, never forgetting a credit card anywhere. I'm going to assume, I'm going to say that you never have done that, ever. I, I misplace my things all the time. I lose track of my phone, of my wallet, of my keys. I lose a ton of stuff. I feel uh, okay, hold on, hold on. Go I'm ahead. not buying this. I feel like you lose track of stuff for like five seconds. And then you're like, oh, it's in the organized compartment where I left it. Of course it is. Like, <laughs> you it is. How, What's the longest you've lost your phone? Uh, my phone is, is one that I find more quickly because uh-huh. you just have someone call it, which is yeah. pretty straightforward. I've lost <laughs> my true. wallet for a more than 24-hour period. Okay, um, which I feel like is is pretty solid. So that's I, pretty I, solid. I, it's that's close. it's you know it's a, it's a high number. It's not as high as it could be, but we're gonna come back stronger next time. I'm gonna be the one leaving my credit card at random bars in New York City, and and you know what? I'm gonna get the shine. Joe, just to tell you how the it really works out here in these streets, I lost my driver's license in my cell phone case one time to the point where I ordered a new ID. Nice. And then something happened to my phone, aka I broke it, and I took the case off for the first time in five months, and my driver's license fell out. Attaboy. That's the way this works. Congrats. Congrats. Yeah, that's you played the trump card. This is the way, the chaotic yeah. way, uh, here on the Total Soccer <laughs> Show. Gentlemen, thank you again for taking the time. Listeners, thank you all for, for hanging out with us today. Uh, always a good time, always a good chat. Uh, I look forward to doing it again with you two next week. Joe will be back tomorrow with Graham and Ryan to do some listener question answering. For now, thanks again for listening. Talk to you very soon.